Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Putting feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. Three feet, two and a half down. Straight shadow. Four forward. Four forward, drift into the right little. Three, down and a half. Thirty seconds. Forward, drift. Eight. One back right. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Hose control, both auto descent, engine command override off. And then I'm on the hose. 413 is in. Man on the moon. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh... Oh, dear. And quality base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 222 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now... Apollo 11 post-landing and EVA prep. In the final seconds before landing, Buzz Aldrin saw the shadow of one of the three footpads that had touched the surface. The engine was still running, and Eagle was hovering. Buzz said, Contact light. Neil and Buzz looked at each other with a stolen glance of relief and immense satisfaction. The lunar module settled gently, and they stopped moving. After flying for more than four days, it was a strange sensation to be suddenly stationary. Neil said, Shut down. Buzz answered, Okay, engine stopped. It was 4.17 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on July 20, 1969, and they had less than 20 seconds worth of fuel remaining. But they were on the moon. Feelings of elation threatened to overwhelm Buzz, but he dared not give in to them. There were many items to do before they could breathe easier. Buzz continued rattling off items from the flight checklist. ACA, out of detent, Buzz said, reminding Neil to take the attitude control assembly, the joystick with which he had manually landed them on the moon out of manual and put it back into auto for their ascent. Out of detent, auto, Neil replied matter-of-factly. They continued with their procedures, but just then Charlie Duke's voice broke in. We copy it down, Eagle, he said with obvious relief. For the first time, Buzz paused and glanced out of his window. The sun was out, the sky was velvety black, and the surface appeared even more desolate than he had imagined. The gray ash-colored rocks and pot-marked terrain, which now, for the first time in its existence, hosted human beings, stretched out as far as he could see and then dipped into the horizon. With their engines stopped, the pervasive silence seemed surreal. Unfortunately, there was no time for celebration. But in the exhilaration of the moment, Buzz reached over and gripped Neil's hand and whispered, We made it.
It was all starting to sink in, what they had just accomplished. Charlie broke in again. You're looking good here. Okay, Neil said to Buzz. Let's get on with it. Back in mission control, Krantz was frustrated at his lack of emotional control. He slammed his forearm against the console. His pen flipped into the air, startling Tyndall and Charlesworth. In a voice that was cracking, he told the controllers to stand by for stay, no stay, at T-1. In case of an emergency after the lunar landing, perhaps if the Eagle was about to tip over, if they had a fuel leak, if some part of the lunar module had been damaged upon landing and could impair their liftoff, or if some other dangerous situation existed, now was the time to find out. Three lunar module liftoff times were selected that would permit a command module rendezvous within the electrical power lifetime of the lunar module. The T1 time was two minutes after landing, T2 was eight minutes after landing, and T3 coincided with the command module orbital pass two hours after landing. While the world was celebrating, each of the controllers overcame his emotional overload and proceeded to swiftly assess spacecraft items. They started with the process to check for an acceptable surface attitude. Then they verified primary computer configuration and lunar module system status for a possible immediate liftoff. In the lunar module, Neil and Buzz knew at this point every second was crucial. The T1 time was only two minutes, so they hastily ran down through their checklist, preparing as though they were going to lift off within the two-minute window. Buzz had personally included this precaution in their flight plan, just in case of a mishap. Prior to their mission, there had been a lot of discussion and some questions about what they should do first after landing on the moon, because they had so many variables to consider. Buzz had suggested that the first thing they do on the moon should be to go through a simulated ascent. That way, if for any reason they had to make a hasty escape, they would have already gone through a practice run of lifting off. Neil and Buzz went through each step, activating the computer program, accessing lunar gravity alignment, star sighting to get their bearings for rendezvous with Mike Collins if necessary. They did everything but push the button to lift off. Back at Mission Control, Krantz started polling his controllers to commit to a surface stay of at least eight minutes. If there was a no-stay, the crew had to lift off in the next 60 seconds. Okay, T1, stay, no, stay, retro. Stay. Vital, stay. Guidance, stay. Control, stay. Telcom, stay. GNC, stay. Econ, stay. Surgeon, stay. Capcom, or stay for T1. All controllers crisply stated that they were stay for T1, which Charlie Duke promptly relayed to the crew. Without a break, the Krantz team rapidly recycled and minutes later gave the crew the stay for T2. Eagle, Houston, you are stay for T2, over. I just stay for T2, we thank you. Roger, sir. Then Mission Control hunkered down for the final stay-no-stay stay decision. Sixteen minutes after the T2 stay, Carlton called Krantz. Flight the descent engine helium tank pressure is rising rapidly. 
The back room expects the burst disc to rupture. We want the crew to vent the system. Krantz's team didn't have the opportunity to savor even a few seconds of the euphoria after the landing as they watched the descent engine helium pressure rise. Then, Mission Control discreetly suggested that Buzz throw a switch to vent the tank. It then stabilized and then plummeted. Carlton hovered over his telemetry display, anxiety coloring his draw. Then with a deep sigh, he said, Flight, we're okay. The pressure has dropped down and the system is stable. From that point on, the stay decision was a piece of cake. Charlie Duke gave the crew the final Eagle UR Go for extended surface operations. Charles Wolf came to the console during the T3 stay no stay process and prepared to step in if the crew requested an early EVA. Shortly after touchdown, Buzz tried to describe for the people on Earth what they were seeing on the moon. Looking out his window, he said, Now we'll get to the details of, uh, of what's around here, but it looks like a collection of just about every variety of uh, shape, angularity, granularity, but every variety of rock you could uh, find. The color is, uh, well, it varies pretty much depending on uh, how you're looking relative to the uh, real phase point. Uh, there doesn't appear to be too much of a general color at all. However, it looks as though some of the uh, rocks and boulders, of which there are quite a few in the uh, near area, uh, looks as though they're going to have uh, some interesting colors to them. Over. Roger, copy. Sounds good to us, uh, Tranquility. Uh, we'll let you press on through the uh, simulated countdown, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Over. Okay, this one six G is just like the airplane. Right, Tranquility. Uh, be advised, there are lots of smiling faces in this room and all over the world. Over. All right, two of them up here. Right, it was a beautiful job, you guys. And don't forget one in the command module. Right. Neil wanted Mission Control to know why he had flown over their intended landing area. Houston, uh, that may have seemed like a very long final phase. Uh, the auto-targeting was taking us right into a football field-sized uh, field crater uh, with a large number of uh, big boulders and rocks uh, for about a one or two crater diameters around it and it required a gun and P-66 and flying manually over the rock field uh, to find a reasonably good area. Roger, we copy. It was beautiful from here. Tranquility, over. Uh, you might be interested to know that uh, I, I don't think we noticed any difficulty at all in adapting to 16G. Uh, it seems uh, uh, immediately natural to move in, uh, in this environment. Rugged Tranquility, we copy, over. Neil Armstrong reporting there, no difficulty adapting to the one-sixth gravity of the moon. ...window is a relatively level plane cratered with uh, a fairly large number of uh, uh, craters of the, of the uh, 5 to 50-foot variety and uh, some ridges, uh, small 
30 feet high, I would guess, and uh, literally thousands of little one and two foot uh, craters around the area. We see some uh, angular blocks out uh, several hundred feet in front of us that are probably uh, two feet uh, in size and have uh, angular edges. Uh, there is a hill in view uh, just about uh, on the ground track uh, ahead of it. Difficult to estimate, but might be uh, a half a mile or uh, a mile. Roger, tra Tranquility, we copy, over. Sounds like it looks a lot better uh, than it did yesterday at that very low sun angle. It looked rough as a car, Ben. Well, it really was rough, Mike, uh, over the... Uh, the targeted landing area, it was uh, extremely rough, cratered, and uh, large numbers of rocks that were probably some, uh, many larger than five or ten feet in size. Went in doubt land long. So we did. Both astronauts wanted to get these descriptions on the record as early as possible, just in case they had to make a hasty departure. More than anything, however, they wanted to get out there and explore the moon's surface. It was hard to believe that two men could land on the moon and go to sleep before setting foot on it, but that was what the conservatively-minded flight plan called for. In case Armstrong and Aldrin had to make an emergency liftoff and rendezvous, they would need to be rested. Before the mission, Armstrong had approved the early four-hour sleep period knowing full well that barring any problems, he and Aldrin would almost surely reject it on the moon. But he didn't say anything to the press, just in case, for some unforeseeable reason, he and Aldrin ended up sticking to the original plan. But now there was no reason to wait. Eagle was in perfect order. One-sixth G felt entirely natural. In fact, they liked it better than either normal gravity or weightlessness. The moon's gravity had much of the buoyancy of zero-g without the disorienting lack of up and down. And so far Armstrong and Aldrin agreed. They would go out early. Armstrong called Houston to suggest that the moonwalk begin at about 8 o'clock in the evening Houston time some five hours ahead of schedule. Almost immediately, Charlie Duke came back with a go-ahead. This is Apollo Control Houston at uh, 105 hours. Uh, now into the flight, Apollo 11. Uh, we expect a, uh, our cap capsule communicator, Owen Garriott, uh, to pass along uh, data to uh, spacecraft Columbia momentarily. Uh, we're standing by for that. Meanwhile, I think uh, we should uh, discuss uh, a little further the uh, projected EVA. Our current plan is to have uh, crew members aboard the Eagle to eat and relax for a little while prior to starting EVA prep. So we won't know with certainty uh, or have a reasonable time hack until about an hour before the scheduled event. Uh, right now, it looks like it could occur at uh, 8 o'clock uh, Houston time. Before the planned eating and rest periods, Buzz wanted to do something spiritual. But NASA was still smarting from a lawsuit filed by atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare, 
after the Apollo 8 astronauts read from the biblical creation account in Genesis. O'Hare contended this was a violation of the constitutional separation of church and state. Although O'Hare's views did not represent mainstream America at the time, her lawsuit was a nuisance and a distraction that NASA preferred to live without. Before the mission, Buzz met with Deke Slayton to inform him of his plans and that he intended to tell the world what he was doing. Deke told Buzz that was not a good idea. It was okay to have communion, but to keep his comments more general. Buzz understood that Deke did not want any more trouble. So, when the time came, Buzz reached into his personal preference kit and pulled out the communion elements along with a 3 by 5 card on which he had written a Bible verse which said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Buzz poured a thimble full of wine from a sealed plastic container in a small chalice and waited for the wine to settle down as it swirled in the one-sixth earth gravity of the moon. Buzz tried to be inclusive in his comments to the world, saying, Hi, uh, Houston, Tranquility, over. Tranquility, Houston, go ahead. Roger, this is the Lem Pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever, wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. Over. Roger, Tranquility Base. Then Buzz silently read the Bible passage as he partook of the wafer and the wine and offered a private prayer for the task at hand an opportunity he had been given. Neil watched respectfully, but made no comment. Neil Armstrong had his own ceremony to think about. Almost from the moment the world learned that he would be the first human being to set foot on the moon, he had been asked what he would say as he crossed that threshold. His mail had been full of suggestions, including passages from the Bible, verses of Shakespeare, and countless others. Everyone from the press to the simulator instructors brought it up. Not even by leaving Earth could he escape. Collins and Aldrin asked him about it on the way to the moon. If it hadn't been for the fact that everyone made such a big deal of it, Armstrong would not have focused on the matter at all. The landing was the flight's greatest achievement, and in Armstrong's mind, it amounted to the first human contact with the moon. But, to a public estranged from technology of his journey, a landing was less meaningful than a footstep. It was natural for them to want historic words for historic occasions, but they were expecting them from a man who did not deal liberally in words. But now, on the moon, Armstrong knew he could delay no longer. As he thought about the first step he would take from Eagle's footpad, he pondered the inherent paradox. A small step, yet a significant one. 
and he knew what he would say. At 7.21 p.m. Houston time, 108 hours 42 minutes mission elapsed time, Armstrong and Aldrin began the most critical and the most tiring part of the entire moonwalk, suiting up. They were already behind schedule because there were things to do that had not been part of the practice runs, such as stowing the trash from dinner. And the task took longer than they expected. Buzz thought it would take several hours to suit up in the cramped space of Eagle, but this was no time to rush, and Armstrong and Aldrin worked with the care of skydivers packing their chutes following the checklist to the letter. First, they pulled on their lunar overshoes, whose rubber soles had coarse treads designed to give sure footing on alien soil. Neil and Buzz helped each other one at a time to put on the portable life support system that had been the bane of their existence during training. The 185-pound life support backpacks were still large and cumbersome even with their lunar equivalent weight of 30 pounds in the one-sixth gravity. Armstrong and Aldrin had no trouble hefting them with one hand. Still, they felt the mass of the packs that was undiminished, and despite their efforts to avoid bumping into control panels and each other in the cramped cabin, that happened more than once. Oxygen hoses were next, their metal fittings locked into receptacles on the front of their suits. Then came the hoses for their water-cooled underwear. Water from the backpacks would circulate through a network of tiny tubes woven into the undergarment. The system would circulate the ice water that was being produced by the backpack through nearly 300 feet of tubing. This method of cooling a person inside a spacesuit was so effective that there was almost no way for them to become overheated, the way Gemini spacewalkers had. Tests had shown that the astronaut would tire himself out before that happened. The suits had electrical power and enough oxygen for four hours and antenna connections for radio communications between the moonwalkers and Earth. Armstrong and Aldrin carefully locked each hose in place and then locked the locks in yet another level of security. Both men were on hot mic now and the radio transmissions that came down from the moon sounded like strange high-tech poetry. Quote, Locks are checked, blue locks are checked, lock locks, red locks, purge locks. Actopia 020 to right hand, PGD connector lock. Let me do that for you.
On top of their large backpacks, they had an additional emergency supply of oxygen in a separate container in case they needed it while on the moon or for an emergency EVA spacewalk upon redocking with Columbia after liftoff from the moon. Onto each man's clear bubble helmet went a special outer helmet equipped with a gold-plated visor to reflect the sun's unfiltered glare. On their chest, they wore small control units for their radios and to display readings on the backpack. Each methodical step brought them closer to setting foot on the bright ground beyond Eagle's windows. All set for the gloves, Aldrin said, and each man pulled on a space-age version of a knight's gauntlet. With coverings of woven steel fiber and rubber fingertips, that afforded some measure of dexterity. With the flick of a switch, each man started the pumps and fans in his backpack and heard the familiar, reassuring hum of machinery that would keep him alive and felt the whoosh of oxygen past his face. Their ears registered increasing pressure as the suit inflated to 3.5 pounds per square inch. Now, Armstrong and Aldrin were self-contained, mobile spacecrafts. Houston, uh, this is Tranquility. We're standing by for a go for a cabin deep breath. Over. Tranquility Base, this is Houston. You are go for cabin depressurization. Go for cabin depressurization. Roger, thank you. All that remained was to vent Eagle's oxygen into space. But even that took longer than expected. Aldrin opened the valve and the men watched the pressure reading creep downward. After three minutes, it was four-tenths of a pound. A minute later, two-tenths. Let me see if it will open now, Aldrin said, reaching for the handle. It stayed firmly shut. The pressure read one-tenth of a pound and holding. Amazingly, just a tiny bit of oxygen pressure would keep that hatch from opening inward. Buzz made a mental note of that since he would be the last man out of the lunar module. If there was any oxygen remaining in the eagle when he stepped out and the hatch should close, they would have a hard time getting back in the lunar module. The pressure inside would seal the hatch closed. Neither man wanted to tug on the thin metal door for fear of damaging it. Finally, Aldrin peeled back one corner to break the seal. That did it. Neil, this is Houston. What's your status on hatch opening alert? Uh, everything is go here. We're just waiting for the uh, cabin pressure to bleed so, uh, to low enough pressure to uh, open the hatch. It's about 0.1 on our gauge now. Ready to tug on that thing. Alternative would be to open that one too. Uh, Neil, this is Houston, over. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, Roger, we're showing a relatively static pressure uh, on your cabin. Uh, do you think you can open the hatch at this pressure, about uh, 0.12 psi? Uh, we're going to try it. Roger. Uh, the hatch is coming open. 
The hatch is coming open, Armstrong radioed, excitement creeping into his voice. As it did so, the last wisp of Eagle's atmosphere rushed outward in a flurry of ice particles, and the two men stood in the vacuum of space. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 222 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Post-Landing and EVA Prep. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every episode of the podcast, even the ones that no longer fit on the RSS feed. You can do all of that on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, I want to dedicate this episode to all those affected by Hurricane Harvey. My heart goes out to all of you. Of course, Houston is a very important place to me and, of course, this podcast. They're really going through a tough time now with all the flooding. A good way to support the victims of the hurricane is to make a donation to the Red Cross. I'll put the link with this week's episode, but it's pretty easy to remember. It's redcross.org. Redcross.org. So, if you can make a donation, I'm sure they would appreciate that very much. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to give credit to a few of my sources that I've been using. Buzz Aldrin's book, Magnificent Desolation. Mike Collins, his book, Carrying the Fire. Neil Armstrong's A Life of Flight. Andrew Chaikin, A Man on the Moon. Gene Krantz's Failure is Not an Option, and the Apollo 11 Lunar Surface Journal, which has more details than you can shake a stick at. I had spoken about this last week, about the 1202 computer overload alarms. This is what Buzz Aldrin's opinion was on those alarms, and I'm taking it from his book Magnificent Desolation, and I'm going to quote from it. Quote, 40 years later, I, meaning Buzz, can now tell you why that computer overloaded, although at the time it never occurred to us. The reason the computer could not handle the data was that Neil and I had purposely left the rendezvous radar in the on position. At some point after the Eagle had separated from the Columbia, I should have turned off the rendezvous radar, but I chose not to do so. I hadn't wanted to eliminate an opportunity to check the rendezvous radar before we actually needed it, so I left it on. I wanted a safety precaution in case we had to make a quick ascent, hightailing it away from the moon's surface and back into space to catch up with Mike Collins and the Columbia. Our ride back home. As it was, 
We had no idea that the computer could not handle information from the rendezvous radar and the landing radar at the same time, or process the data quickly enough, end quote. So Buzz is kind of taking responsibility for doing that, but it, it was part of procedure like we covered last week. Now, I have some additional information and I want to pass on. You remember everyone was concerned about running out of fuel before the Eagle landed. Well, on September 19, 2001, Neil Armstrong was interviewed at NASA Johnson by historians Stephen Ambrose and Douglas Brinkley as part of the JSC Oral History Project. During that interview, Neil said, quote, I wanted to make it as easy for myself as I could on that first landing. There's a lot of concern about coming close to running out of fuel, and I was very cognizant of that. But I did know that if I could have my speed stabilized and attitude stabilized, I could fall from a fairly good height, perhaps maybe 40 feet or more in the low lunar gravity. The gear would absorb that much fall. So I was perhaps probably less concerned about it than a lot of people watching down here on Earth. That's not to say I wasn't thinking about it, though, because I certainly was. But I thought it was important to try to get it down smoothly on the first try. We didn't know how that landing was actually going to go until that point. So I wanted to make it as gentle as I could. End quote. So Neil believed he could drop from 40 feet with no damage to the lunar module. There's another source that is contradicting that. According to the other source I have, an engine cutout at any height above 10 feet would have produced a touchdown harder than the landing gear was designed to withstand. So with a little bit of conflicting uh, information there, but you can understand Maybe why Neil wasn't as worried about it as uh, it seemed because it was getting pretty close to running out of fuel there. Also, during the final touchdown, Neil's heart rate was 150 beats per minute. That was the highest of any of the lunar commanders. Probably the need to avoid the West Crater was a contributing factor, although the drama of the moment was undoubtedly played a role as well. Neil said his resting heart rate was usually around 60 beats per minute. So certainly he was a bit concerned about the landing. Okay, I've posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Marco M. from California sent in another donation this year in honor of episode 222. <laughs> this places him above and beyond the Orion level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. 222 thanks to Marco for your continued support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Ulfert B. from Germany also donated above and beyond the Orion level and earned his satellite emoji. Thank you very much, Ulfert. Zachary M. from Australia donated at the Apollo level. Graham M. from Australia sent in another donation this year, moving him up to the shuttle level. 
with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. Urs W. donated at the Mercury level. Alexander S. donated at the Vostok and earned his rocket emoji. Neil F. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Troy W. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level. Adam P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Tom H. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you so much, donors. I really appreciate it. That brings our total Patreons to 136. That is 14 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. Our total number of donors for the year have reached 236, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely funded by the listeners. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have something different this week to give away. It is the NASA 3.5-inch Meatball Sticker. That's almost 9 centimeters. Designed in 1959, the NASA insignia contains the following elements. 1. The sphere, representing a planet. 2. The stars, representing space. 3. The vector, representing aeronautics. And 4. The orbit, representing space travel. To select the winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range into Google's random number generator and got the number 65. Donor number 65 is Johan Linden. Johan, if you would please email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, and I will mail this out to you. I have several more of these 3.5-inch, 9-centimeter NASA stickers, so we will have a new drawing for the 2017 donor group next week. I was pleased to see the podcast received two new 5-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank The Rubber Duck for taking the time and effort to write a review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. There was also one anonymous five-star rating as well, and I want to thank whoever did that. I certainly appreciate you taking the time to give the podcast a five-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue from where we left off. The astronauts will walk on the moon next week. Unless I find too many details. <laughs> unless I put too many details in there. The astronauts will walk next week. They're, they're, they've already been in the cabin, so they're ready to go. Well, in personal news, we're planning a trip with the camper. Uh, in the early part of September, and we're going to head up through Ohio, Michigan, and maybe a little bit of Canada. Now, there are a a lot of good space aviation places to visit. I am planning on visiting the Armstrong Air and Space Museum, 
the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force, John and Annie Glenn Museum, the International Women's Air and Space Museum, and the Wright Brothers Memorial and Aviation Trail, and the Aviation History Museum in Kalamazoo, Michigan. If I have missed any good space-slash-aviation places to visit in Ohio or Michigan, please feel free to let me know. My email is mike at spacerockethistory.com, and that is the best way to contact me. Okay, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 223 up by next Thursday. So long for now.